listeners and the leaders that it most definitely was understood. The nation of Israel was God's vineyard. I read portions of Isaiah that describe Israel as his vineyard. There are other references in the Psalms, in the book of Jeremiah, in the book of Ezekiel, in the minor prophet, the book of Hosea. The vine dressers represent wicked religious and political leaders of Israel throughout her history. The servants represent the prophets that God sent to Israel through the centuries, calling them back to repentance. The son in the parable represents Jesus as the only begotten son of God. The vine dressers were about to kill the son. The vineyard would be taken away from Israel and it would be given to non-Jewish foreigners. And so in verse 9, Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country for a long time. Now, I want you to remember from the Isaiah passage that the vineyard was fully equipped. It was fully functional. God was described as digging it out, as clearing the stones, as planting only the choicest vines in it from the Napa Valley, as erecting a tower, as planting a hedge around it and building a wine press in it. This is what we would call today a turnkey operation. It wasn't just land. You know, he's not saying that he, he, that Israel was given some land. He's saying, no, Israel itself is my vineyard. I've done everything for them to be fruitful. This would be like you buying a fully functioning vineyard or a fully, in this area, a fully functioning dairy. You bought a dairy in this area, you'd expect it to have cows and milkers and, you know, all the kinds of things that I don't fully understand in dairy life. But, uh, you know, you want to be able to be producing milk right away. And it would be a fully functioning dairy, not just a piece of bare land. Now, each of those activities that we've described God as doing provide hours of personal meditation. For example, how many times have you heard someone pray that God would plant a hedge around them? I've prayed that, and so have you probably. Lord, be a hedge about us. Now, the truth is, God is a hedge about you. And he said to Israel, you're my vineyard. I've planted a hedge about you, a hedge of protection. And if you're a Christian, God has planted a hedge about you. Now, a hedge planted around a vineyard keeps out pests, specifically in the Old Testament, foxes that would otherwise come and destroy the grapes. If things are spoiling your spiritual life, then perhaps you are not tending a portion of the hedge that God has planted to protect you. And, and so it's a, it's, it's a really good meditation. Now we could go on and on just talking about hedges, let alone God digging out and clearing stones and planting and erecting a tower. The point I really want to emphasize was that the vineyard was intended to produce fruit and God wanted to come into his vineyard to enjoy his fruit. If you are a Christian, You're familiar with the passages in the New Testament that describe your spiritual life as producing fruit. And we talk about that all the time, of being fruitful Christians and and wanting to bring forth fruit. You're familiar with the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. You can read about them in Galatians chapter 5. God's Spirit produces His fruit in you. It's the equivalent of God planting and totally preparing the vineyard for Israel. 
What we sometimes forget is that the fruit is not for us. It is for God. God enjoys the fruit that only he can produce in a human life that is yielded to his Holy Spirit. God enjoys his spiritual fruit. Maybe it's not a big revelation to you. Maybe it's just something I need to hear and remember. But I find that if I remember this, it puts things in a totally different light for me. For example, if God is going to produce fruit in and through my life, then I'm going to need cultivating and watering and weeding and pruning and all the other things that go into fruit production. I should therefore go to places where those things are more likely to occur. My personal devotions, church and Bible study. Sometimes I get busy with my life, so busy that I have to weigh my priorities and decide if I have the time and the energy to have my morning devotions or to go to church that day or to go to Bible study. And when I weigh those priorities, if I'm honest, sometimes I think I'm doing pretty well with the Lord. I feel as though I can afford to miss church one Sunday or devotions for a few mornings or Bible study one Wednesday night or whatever it would be. I think, well, it's, it's not going to kill me. Ah, but what if it's not just about me? What if it's about God enjoying his fruit? I may not think that I need cultivating or watering or weeding or pruning, but I'm not in a position to make that call. Only the owner of the vineyard is. And I may be content with the state of my fruit, but when I am, I've forgotten that it is God's fruit and he's the one that knows when it's fully ripe. Now, listen, we all have things going on in our lives, whether it's devotions that we're thinking about or coming to church or whatever. And I don't want anybody to go away burdened. If anything, we want to lift burdens. You still have priorities. There's still things that you have to do. You can't always come to church. You can't really even always keep your devotions. I hate to say that, but, uh, but uh, this is life and it comes at us in different ways. And, and I understand that. But do we even have the right attitude about that? Would we rather be with God? If, if it came to a choice, do we believe in our hearts that we want to be hanging out with God in these places so that he can be producing his fruit and enjoying that fruit? And I think sometimes we pass into the realm of formality. We, we want to think of God in a more formal term so that it's not on that personal level. And, and that's a sad thing. Verse 10. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. God seeks after his fruit. He works hard in your life, putting you in places and through predicaments that call upon you to yield to his indwelling Holy Spirit to produce his fruit. And there's the old joke, you know, that the guy prays for patience and his buddy says, Lord, send trials into Gene's life. Wait a minute. Don't. I don't want trials. He goes, hey, tribulation works patience. And so the truth is, God enjoys his fruit. And one of those is patience, perseverance, long-suffering. And he puts you in places and in predicaments that will produce that fruit in your life. And we have a tendency, of course, to draw back. That's why the writers of the Bible have to tell you to count it all joy when you fall into various temptations and trials and, and think that it's a beautiful thing and all. Because 
We don't like that. We should have the perspective that God knows what he's doing. The place that I'm in, the predicament I'm in, God is bringing forth fruit in my life, not necessarily even for me. God enjoys that fruit. Not in a weird way or a malicious way or a malevolent way. God enjoys the rich fruit that comes through my life as I depend upon and yield to the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, the parable gets very historical. It gets very Israel in verses 10 through 12. Now, at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent another servant and they beat him also, treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And again, he sent a third and they wounded him also and cast him out. Throughout their history, God sent prophets to Israel to call them from their sin and back to obedience. The prophets were almost always mistreated, if not killed. We've mentioned Isaiah. He is reported to have been placed inside a hollowed out tree trunk and then sawn in two pieces. That's how they killed Isaiah. Jeremiah was once placed in stocks, put out in the public square to be ridiculed. Later, he was thrown into a miry pit and left to, down, uh, to drown and die. But he was rescued. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, God's servants are described this way. As being stoned, sawn in two, tempted, slain with the sword, wandering about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, tormented, wandering in deserts and mountains, living in dens and caves of the earth. That's how the servants were treated. Verse 13, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him when they see him. On the surface, this was a, a bad idea. I mean, if you're, if you're just living in the parable, this, y, 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 this guy is not thinking right. But in the story, it revealed the awesome lengths to which God's compassion and long-suffering go to save his people. The owner of the vineyard was willing to risk the life of his son. The son willingly risked his life. It was and is, of course, a description of God the Father sending his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to call Israel to repentance. In their case, father and son already knew the outcome. Jesus would come to his people. He would not be received by their leaders. He would be refused, rejected. He would be crucified. How could they not respect him when they saw him? To see Jesus was to see God in human flesh. The hardness of a human heart is beyond that of the hardest substance known to man. You know, sometimes on these shows they talk about the hardness of a substance and they're always trying to figure out, you know, what is the hardest substance known to man? It's the human heart in a very real sense. Sin is the world's worst hardening agent. So much so that Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, surrounded by miracles, signs, and wonders in the fulfillment of ancient prophecies that everyone knew, declaring that he was the Messiah, announced as the one that they should respect, the hearts of the leadership was so hard that they rejected and refused and put him to death. There's nothing harder than that. Verse 14. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him 
that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard that, they said, certainly not, or may it never be. The listeners knew the meaning of this story. They knew Israel was God's vineyard and that Jesus was representing the son. Their exclamation, certainly not, tells us how much they understood it. God did take the vineyard away from Israel. You know that in 70 AD, Titus and the Roman legions overran and overthrew Jerusalem. The Jews were scattered all over the planet for almost 2,000 years. God is not through with Israel as a nation or with the Jews as his special people. But he is not really among them in a sense of enjoying the fruit of his vineyard. Instead, and in the meantime, God has turned to the others. When you read the book of Acts, you see Israel's rejection of Jesus even after his resurrection. And you see the message of God's salvation go beyond Israel to the Gentile nations, to the non-Jewish foreigners. We live in that time between Israel's official rejection of Jesus and his return to the earth. During this time, God still enjoys fruit. But it's the fruit of the spirit he produces in your life. You are his vineyard. Or if you want to expand it, you can just say you are his field. God makes you fruitful to enjoy his fruit. He does not need you. You do not add anything to the glory of God. God did not have to create the universe and the earth and the garden and Adam and Eve. He was fully sufficient in and of himself. But he did that. And in a very profound sense, the Bible indicates that God enjoys hanging out with you. Much more so than we enjoy hanging out with even the very best of friends. And most people enjoy that a lot. Weigh it out this way. And again, not to burden anybody, just think about it as an illustration. Has there ever been a time you knew you needed to get up early the next morning to go to work or to take a test or whatever it is, and you're just having such a great time with your friends? You committed to yourself, honey, we're going to leave at 9, we're going to leave at 9.30, 10 o'clock at the latest, give me the signal. You have signals between your husband and wife, don't you? You better, but uh, they shouldn't be quite so obtuse. But, uh, and, and, and then the next thing you know, it's midnight, it's 1 in the morning, it's 1.30, and, and your whole plan is, I, just, I need this fellowship, I need this relationship more than I need sleep. I'm just having such a good time getting to know each other, just spending time with each other. And then the phone rings. And it's God saying, why don't you go home and go to bed so that you and I can hang out in the morning? And so you finally go home. And then the phone rings again because it doubles as your alarm. And the alarm goes off and you lean over and you think, oh, man, I'm so tired. I just, you know, spent so much time talking to my friends. I, I can't get up and have devotions. Whoa. I uh, cannot have fellowship with God through my devotions this morning because I was hanging out with my friends last night. And you know what God would say? This one, you know, what, what we have is hanging out. I'm asking you to get up and hang out with me. 
And see, we put this formal title on everything that we do. We, we see it as a discipline or a duty rather than just hanging out with God. And what we would do with our friends, we don't want to do with God. And, and it's not always even our fault. A lot of times it's the fault of a church. It's the fault of a religious organization. Hey, every religion in the world other than biblical Christianity is at fault. Because they teach you and they train you that God is some distant deity. You have to crawl on glass, either literally or, or figuratively, to get anywhere near him. And once you're totally bleeding from the broken glass, then they're going to put you on a cross and crucify you. And then maybe you can cry out to God and he'll lean over and say, oh, that's not quite enough. And all the time God says, hey, there I was in the garden even after Adam and Eve sinned. And all I said is, where are you guys? And what's the matter? I'm here to hang out with you. And this is the whole perspective that I want to have this morning. Next time you think of a spiritual duty or discipline, just think of it as hanging out with God. Now back into our verses, the listeners understood Jesus was saying that God's vineyard would be given to foreigners. We are those foreigners. Are we established on God's foundation is our next question. Jesus had just said the vineyard would be given. He always gave a biblical basis for his comments. Did he have one for this? Yes, he did. In the verses regarding the rejected cornerstone that would eventually hurtle through history and grind many to powder. Verse 17, then he looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus quoted this from uh, Psalm 118. It was Passover season. Psalm 118 was one of the Psalms recited at Passover. The Jewish leaders had been reciting it for years without understanding it. Jesus quoted this passage and said it was a prophecy of his rejection. It was his scriptural basis for saying that the vineyard would be taken from Israel and be given to foreigners. The son of the parable became the stone of this prophecy. The vine dressers of the parable became the builders. By the way, if Jesus always had a biblical basis for what he said and did, how much more should we? There's nothing wrong with having a biblical basis for what you say and do. People sometimes think that if they're being led by the Holy Spirit, that they can do anything they want and blame it on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the author of God's Word. He is in harmony with the Father and the Son. There's nothing wrong with trying to figure out what is going on based on God's word and do it in a solid way. Don't just grab a verse and say, oh, this kind of covers that. I mean, does it really? Jesus did it. We should do it. Now, why would the builders reject a chief cornerstone? Lately, I've had to put together a lot of cheap furniture. This stuff from China, it's all coming from China right now. Something the size of this sanctuary in a box the size of my Bible. Some assembly required. All you need is a toothpick and a pair of scissors, you know, and, so, and it turns out you need to have a crane or something. But anyway, so I'm putting this thing together the other day and it's got those wood dowels, you know, that hold the, the two pieces together and they're called self-gluing dowels. And I'm looking at them thinking self-gluing dowels and they must just not know how to translate into English. You know, and, and I'm looking at them. And I think, well, OK, if they're self gluing, what, what would you think? They glue themselves. So I put these dowels in and they're just not holding. 
I get to the end when it's too late to take the thing apart, really, you know, or you got to start over. And like in really, really small print about the size of the eye on the pyramid in the back of a dollar bill, you know, there's a little box that says, be sure to put the self-gluing dowels in water before you insert them to activate the glue. If I knew any Chinese swear words, I would have used them. <laughs> and so sometimes, sometimes you, you do reject building materials. Now, if we understand a cornerstone to be a foundation stone, there are s- several possible reasons why the builders would reject it. First of all, builders would reject it if they didn't think it fit right. Jesus was certainly not the type of savior they were expecting. You would say he didn't fit their expectations and so they rejected him second builders would reject a cornerstone if it lacked a certain beauty you know if you're going to have a cornerstone that's going to be the foundation of your building you'd, you'd like it to look beautiful jesus was common and ordinary he was just, he looked like an uh, an average everyday jewish man he wasn't even formally educated he really had nothing going for him other than he was filled with God and he was God. But, you know, we'll set that. But just on a, on a regular basis, he had nothing. Even the scripture says that there was nothing about him that we should desire him. And so this Jewish ruling class, they looked at Jesus and said, we, we don't want him. He's not my hero. He's not among the beautiful people that can represent us. And third, a builder would reject the cornerstone if they didn't think it could support the structure. Jesus was about to fulfill and finish all the Old Testament symbolism. Their whole way of doing things was about to be radically changed. But as you read about these guys, they liked the way they did things. They loved their Old Testament system of sacrifice and self-righteousness. They wanted that supported, not fulfilled. And so they threw Jesus out. Though they would reject Jesus, God would establish him. Here's a passage from Ephesians chapter 2. Let me read it to you. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We were once foreigners, but after the leaders of Israel rejected Jesus, And the gospel went out to foreigners. God began to build his church with Jesus as the foundation and the chief cornerstone. We are that temple on earth built on Jesus Christ. Now, all this talk about prophetic stones got Jesus thinking about another prophecy. Verse 18, he said, whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. The prophet Daniel spoke of a stone that hurtled down from heaven upon the kingdoms of the world and destroyed them, ground them into powder. And that stone then grew into a mountain that filled the whole earth. Man, is that weird. That's a weird vision. But it's perfect. Jesus was and is that stone. One day he will, in a sense, hurtle down from heaven in his second coming. And he will destroy the kingdoms of the earth. And then he will become, in a sense, the mountain because his kingdom will fill the whole earth as he rules and reigns. In the meantime, if you fall on the stone, if you fall on Jesus, you will be broken. Now, this is not the good kind of brokenness. This is the bad kind of brokenness. 
Jesus is describing people who stumble over him because they refuse to acknowledge their sin and their need for a savior. He's a stumbling block to them because they're expecting something else. They're expecting someone else. They don't want to confess and acknowledge their sin. If you fall on him, stumble over him, if you reject him, he will fall on you. Grind him to powder is a warning about the danger you are in. If you reject the Lord, you'll be lost for all eternity. Now, one thing I like about this section, by the way, is how Jesus found himself everywhere in the Bible. Jesus was always quoting passages that spoke about him. Daniel chapter 2, Psalm 118. We should always want to see Jesus when we study God's word. There are marvelous doctrines to learn. There, there's uh, history that we have to understand. There are cultural things that need to be known. Archaeology, you know, the medicine of the Bible. There's so many things that are fantastic to be studied and learned. None of them make any sense or have any real meaning to you unless Jesus is at the heart of them, unless you're looking for the Lord and, and how you can know him better. And so verse 19 The chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. They wanted to commit deicide. They wanted to murder God. It's interesting that they feared the people, but they did not fear God. You should, of course, fear God, and then you will never fear anyone else. The fear of man too often guides and directs churches and Christians rather than the fear of God. Now, we should constantly review our efforts as a church to be sure that the Lord is really at the foundation of everything we're doing. It seems to me that we get tripped up in at least two areas, traditions or trends. Those are the two things that we want to watch out for. On the one hand, we can get too involved with our own traditions or even previous traditions and we cling to them long after Jesus has asked us to move along into something different. Hey, that was for a time and a place. I'm not doing that anymore. It's amazing how many people think that when they got saved, whatever was going on musically and preaching and the Bible study, whatever, that is what God wants to use for the rest of eternity. And anything else that comes in, just because you might not like it, well, God's not in it. And tradition can be something that really stifles us. How many churches have just died out because they rigidly cling to their tradition and are not following the leading of the Holy Spirit? On the other hand, we can get too influenced by current trends. There there are seminars every day of the week for church leaders to figure out what the current trends are so that you can be trendy and, 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 you know, what works today? What's the demographic? Uh, How are you going to reach this group and that group and all of that? And, and, you know, the, the conclusion always is you can't really just teach the Bible anymore. You have to have all this other fluffy stuff going on in order to really minister to me. And, And that's wrong, too. Traditions and trends are not always wrong, but they are worth reviewing to be certain Jesus is the foundation of them. Now, if you're a Christian, other believers might be or they will be suggesting to you that you don't show enough respect for God because your worship is too casual. This is a movement in the church, in the evangelical church right now. 
And a lot of people are caught up in it. Now, listen to me. I'm not saying that people who worship in a more formal way are necessarily wrong. I love it that there's a lot of different churches. I don't see it as a problem at all. People come up and they go, oh, how come there's so many churches? You know, it seems so terrible. No, it's a joy. It's a blessing. Because there's so many different types of people in the way that they want to relate to God. But what I'm talking about is the person that says, hey, what you're doing is wrong because it's not formal enough. You're not showing enough respect for God. You're disrespecting God. You're irreverent almost. Why? Because of the songs you sing or the style of music or the way you present the word of God or what you do or don't do. Hey, forget about that. That's between you and the Lord. As long as I'm hanging out with God, as long as they're hanging out with God, I don't even care if they call it that. That's what they're doing, hopefully. And so we all have to draw that line for ourselves. I don't know. There are things, believe it or not, I mean, you're going to laugh, but there are things that I would consider too casual. And, 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 you know, we do draw some lines. But there are a lot of things that we would consider way too formal, and we draw that line. And so we just we want to appeal to the people who like what we do and what we do is what everybody ought to do. And that is just hang out with God. Our our church, our Bible studies, whatever we do, it ought to be like the Garden of Eden where God just came and walked with us. Not a place where we're always showing God our works. You know, God didn't want to come down into the garden every day and say, "Okay, Adam, what's with this tree over here? I thought I told you to trim that yesterday. What have you been doing? There's, you know. There's no parasites. There's no, you don't even have to water because a cloud mist comes up and waters everything. So why isn't that tree pruned? Where's my fruit basket? You know, what's happening here? What's going on? God didn't want to do that. We portray God that way in church when we tell people what they ought to be doing for God. You know what you ought to be doing for God? Hanging out with him, spending time with him, getting to know him because that was the original intent that he had. If you're not a believer, Jesus is this stone that's hurtling through heaven right now. He's on his way back in his second coming soon. You see the signs all over the place. Whether you want to believe it or not, why stumble over him now and risk being ground into powder? He's calling to you just like he did to Adam and Eve after they sinned. Even after they sinned, God came into the garden like he did every day. And he said, Adam, where are you? Where are you? He didn't say, like we might say to disobedient children, I'm coming. You can't hide from me. I know where you are. When I find you, it's going to be two swaths. He didn't do any of that. I mean, we've done that. Well, maybe I've done that. But anyway, that's what I do to Gene here at the church. A lot of little nooks and crannies for him to hide in. But anyway, that's the way we portray God. God came into the garden after they had sinned, after they had given themselves over to the devil, after they had created all of the things that we see today. You know, think of Hurricane Katrina. That's the result of what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. It's the direct result of despoiling nature and ruining this creation. And God came into that situation. He said, Adam, where are you? What have you done? Seeking their repentance. And even after they blew it and said, the woman did it, the devil did it. He said, okay, here's what I'm going to do to rectify the situation. 
so that what? So that we can go on hanging out together. It'll be more difficult because you're going to have a sin nature now. You, you know, you've, it's cost you something. But I still want to hang out with you. Hang out with God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these things. And, and uh, they're profound, Lord, in the deepest sense. And, I, and yet they're very simple. And I pray that we would come to understand them more deeply uh, and more dearly. And that any spiritual discipline that we think of, whether it's prayer or Bible study, giving, whether it's fasting, whatever it is that we would put in the category of a duty or a discipline, we would obliterate that thought in our mind and just see it as being with you. Lord, if we like to be with other people, whether it's our husband or wife or our friends or whoever it is we want to hang out with, how much more we should want to hang out with you. You are the one, Lord, that should refresh and encourage and bless us. We should be wanting to get to places where we can meet with you rather than weighing out what our true priorities are. We do have priorities, Lord. There is a fallen world to deal with and jobs and diseases and things like that. And so, Lord, help this not to be a burden to anyone, but only a blessing in knowing how much you love us how much in grace you want to share with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Some of the guys will be down here to pray with you after the service, and I would encourage you to avail yourself of that, especially if you're here today and you're not a Christian, and you're thinking, okay, man, you got me this far. What do I do? What must I do to be saved? Uh, What I'm telling you to do today is to come forward and let these guys pray with you and share the good news about Jesus Christ with you. Everybody that Jesus called, he called publicly. And so come forward and share your heart with them and and let them lead you in a prayer, receiving Christ into your heart. The rest of you, try and transform the way you think about God. And just just think about him as your best friend who you want to hang out with because that's really how he wants to be thought of. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 15, you're no longer my servants. Now I call you friends. And a friend is somebody that you want to know and hang out with. And Jesus is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. Quit whining about not having enough friends when Jesus is waiting for you. Amen? Amen. God bless you. I want to You want to see your face. I want to touch you. I want to see your face. I want to know you. I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. go with you this week. Amen.